This is episode 207 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, Lula Rowe with Lola Geek. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the mostly self-explanatory show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden. This show is a reboot of Dear Discreet Guide, which ended with 202 episodes at the end of year 2020. So thank you for joining us in the new show. I'm excited to see where this new adventure will take us. I'm so pleased to welcome a new guest to the show today. Lola Geek is with us, and I'll introduce her. She's a content creator with a background in art and design and a full-time career in training and compliance. She started a YouTube channel in 2017 to document her life and travels, but found that there was lots of interest when she shared her experience as a LuLaRoe fashion consultant from 2015 to 2017. And this has become a popular topic on her channel. In her spare time, she volunteers with several youth and community organizations and performs in a community band. She lives in the greater Philadelphia area with her husband and four cats. So welcome to the show, Lola Geek. Great. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. So we're here today to talk about Lula Rowe. Uh, and I'll just use the introduction from Wikipedia, which I think is pretty good. It's a U.S.-based multi-level marketing company that sells women's clothing. It was founded in 2012 by Deanne Brady and her husband, Mark Stidham, and is currently based in Corona, California. As a multi-level marketing scheme, LuLaRoe recruits independent distributors, referred to the firm as, quote, fashion consultants, unquote, to sell products directly, often through social media. And that's what Lola Geek did. LuLaRoe reported sales of approximately a billion dollars in 2016, which would have made it one of the largest firms in the multi-level marketing industry at the time. And by 2017, there were approximately 80,000 independent distributors selling the company's clothing. The company has received criticism and faced lawsuits from distributors and consumer advocates over several issues related to its business model and for problems with the quality and design of its products. A class action lawsuit filed in California in October 17, and a lawsuit filed by the Washington State Attorney General in January 2019 accused LuLaRoe of being a pyramid scheme. And there's actually a pretty interesting documentary now out on Amazon Prime called Lula Rich. And so we'll talk about that a little bit today too with Lola Geek. So Lola Geek, uh, you had this experience of working with Lula Rowe. Uh, so what got you into it and what got you out? Yes. Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, I, I started in 2015 and really 
I was looking for maxi skirts that summer and somehow the name LuLaRoe came up um, and it was kind of hard to find in my area. I'm on the East Coast and they started uh, on the West Coast and were much better known out there. So um, there really wasn't a lot of information around here. It wasn't as uh, popular on Facebook or social media. It wasn't as easy to buy online as it became. So I ended up kind of finding like a friend of a friend was having a party. I kind of invited myself, got interested in it and just thought kind of out of selfishness, like I want these products in my area. So um, I decided to sign on as a consultant. Um, it was never my plan to you know, quit my day job and become a full-time LuLaRoe boss babe and um, you know retire my husband, any of those catchphrases. That was never my goal. I really just kind of wanted access to the product for myself. Um, as far as what got me out, um, you know, it, it kind of evolved and the company sort of changed from how it was when I joined it. Um, I did put a lot of effort into it considering it was like a part-time, you know, not intended to become my career activity. Um, and eventually it just became more effort than it was worth. Um, there was also a lot of changes to the company. So for example, there did become more of a focus on selling online. Um, there did become more of a focus on leggings, which are not the original product of LuLaRoe, even though that's what they came to be known for. Um, and kind of a few things happened at once. Um, they were moving to a new system, uh, like a backend system for consultants to use. There was a requirement that you had to do your sales on a Apple device, which I did not have. Oh. And they started offering a 100% buyback if you, you know, went out of business and returned your inventory to them. So kind of all those things converged at once where I was like, it seems like a good time to get out. So um, that's when I, I got out. So it was sort of um, the timing of when I joined was sort of just as it was starting to take off in popularity. Um, um, and so the time that I was with the company was really when I always make this uh, curve with my hand that it's like a, you know, a, a straight upward trajectory of where it was like not known, not known, not known, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. you know, very all of a sudden really um, trendy and viral and popular. So it was a interesting time to get in and a lucky time to get out. Yeah. Interesting that you've come out of it pretty unscathed and you've talked a lot or you've posted a lot of videos about your experience on YouTube, which I think is really, really helpful to people. The quality, the quality of the videos is really good. And just, you're such a good explainer. So I don't want to make you regurgitate all that, but generally speaking, do you think the information that's out there publicly is pretty accurate about LuLaRoe or do you think there are some pretty big misconceptions? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously there's a lot of content out there that is created by consultants or by LuLaRoe themselves that's intended to promote and defend LuLaRoe, um, which may or may not be factual, but definitely is skewed in their favor. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also a lot of anti-MLM creators um, posting content. And a lot of that is sort of sensationalized or, you know, just picking and choosing. I mean, there's a couple certain quotes of things that most likely did happen in LuLaRoe and our actual quotes, but it's not like that's all the company was like 
sell your breast milk to be able right. to afford inventory. Um, you know, somebody said that one time and now it's like, this is the company that tells women to sell breast milk. Um, I like, no one told me that. <laughs> so right. I think, you know, there's kind of on both sides of the scale, there's true and false information. Um, I also personally created a video about some of the big things that people get wrong about LuLaRoe just so that people, when they create anti-MLM content, get it right. Mm -hmm. um, because I'm very big on being factual. So like, for example, um, everyone kind of assumes that you just got a mystery box of products. Nobody knew what they were getting that they were going to sell. That wasn't 100% true. You mm -hmm. chose the product products and the sizes that you wanted to carry, what was a mystery was like the fabric that it would be made in the prints and colors and materials. So um, just certain things like that kind of always bug me because people really do sensationalize, mm -hmm. um, you know, their, what LuLaRoe was or wasn't. Um, I guess I should also say I am definitely not defending the company or promoting LuLaRoe in any way. It was definitely a very damaging and negative experience for many people. I was extremely lucky that it wasn't so negative for me, but even still, like I, I left the company for a reason. Right. Um, so I, I hope nothing that I'm saying comes across as defensive of LuLaRoe, but I also just want to make sure that the people who are working against them get their facts right. Right. It's a really good point too, about the breast milk. Cause I think that was shown in the documentary and also about like making people go to Mexico to have, <laughs> you know, whatever that, operation is. So you lose weight and it's unfortunate. You're right. Because some of the footage then in the documentary showed how LuLaRoe was being presented in mainstream media with these sensationalized things. Oh, like you say, you know, you have to sell your breast milk for, which somehow just, I don't know, there must be something really triggering about breast milk or something. It's like, oh, the horror. <laughs> So, but of course, people sell their blood all the time and various things. But anyway, but yeah, you're right. When they go so when the pendulum swings so far in that direction, then you find yourself in the position of, of saying, well, wait a minute. You know, that actually wasn't how it really was. So, yeah, these things can get very, very awkward when you're when you're just like you say, trying to just be a. Uh, a resource of truth and good information for people. What did you think about the documentary? Um, I thought it was great. It was a really fun watch. The editing was fantastic. They had a, a lot of allusions to pyramid shapes, um, the cutting between, you know, people saying one thing and then contradicting themselves later. Um, that was all fantastic. I, I mean, obviously for, for me and people who have really followed LuLaRoe for a long time, there were a lot of issues and scandals and things that were missed that we would have liked to have heard about. Mm -hmm. um, but I think for somebody who was not as familiar with LuLaRoe or maybe had heard of it, but wasn't really aware of all those controversies, I think it was a great introduction to just a lot of the things that have been happening with the company over the the, you know, recent years. Yeah. I, I have to confess, I'd never heard of the company. I'm not much of a, of a fashion buff. So I'd never heard of the company or yeah, the scandal or anything. There does seem to be a lot of sort of common themes with some of these multi-level marketing. So I had watched a documentary about herbal life. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, like I say, there were kind of some common themes. One of the things that struck me about that documentary was 
that the founders made themselves so available at kind of at first mm-hmm. to the to the documentary makers and and there's a discussion somewhere about how the documentary makers explained you know we we want this we want to present your side of the story too and so the founders took advantage of that what was sort of horribly in contrast to their kind of bubbly upbeat you know interview with the documentary makers in this fancy room with you know clothing models around them was the footage of their depositions in the Washington state lawsuit where I don't know what happened to their PR person during those depositions, but that footage is really bad. I mean, they come across. It's almost scary. Yeah. Scary how different they were uh, personality wise from the interview to the deposition. And I, I mean, I luckily have never been deposed personally. I know people get a lot of uh, instruction from their lawyers about how they should behave and how they should answer questions. It was almost like somebody just told them like, shut down, don't answer anything, don't say anything. I don't know if you've seen uh, the actual full recordings of almost all of the depositions in that case have been made available now on YouTube. Um, oh, actually, I wondered um, how they got them. Yeah, well, uh, so the um, the filmmakers got them just by requesting from the state and anyone could request them. Oh. So um, actually, Becca Peter, who is also featured mm-hmm. in the documentary, um, she and some of the other people um, that she's been working with have gotten their own copies of all the depositions and they edited them and cut them into chunks and posted them on YouTube. So you can find all of them now. And I've, I've watched a couple and they're really interesting. I mean, they're very long, they're hours and hours of footage, but it's, it's interesting how some of the people who worked for LuLaRoe, uh, you know, majority of the people were like their family members uh, may or may not have been qualified to do the jobs they were doing. In a couple roles, they did have actual professionals, and those people are really interesting to watch because they actually do, you know, they can give real answers to the questions. They have the knowledge of the systems and things that they were hired to do. Um, So it's interesting watching their depositions versus some of the family members who are just kind of shut down and and don't answer or give any information. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, the whole, that part, seemed really surprising to me because it does seem as though Mark in a couple of those depositions actually lies. And that, (laughs) you know, that, I don't know, I'd be very careful about lying when you're being deposed. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And of course the cutting of the documentary kind Mm -hmm. of, kind of shows, oh, you know, he just lied here, but but yeah, they come across as really sleazy in those depositions, yeah. which, you know, they obviously have the skills to not come across that way. So anyway, that was a big, that was a big mystery to me, how they, how they mishandled those depositions so much. Yeah. I mean, and that's a good point. They obviously could have come across a lot more personably um, and, just, you know, maybe made a more favorable impression just by being more upbeat. But again, I've I've never been there, so I don't know what kind of mm-hmm. uh, advice I might be given about how to behave. But yeah, I feel like they might have done themselves a disservice. Yeah, definitely. Of course, like you say, we don't know. Maybe that had been after 12 hours and they weren't yeah. allowed to go to the bathroom or I don't know. You know, maybe it was kind of, uh, yeah, really terrible conditions. So your experience was not particularly outrageous. The documentary shows some women who really suffered badly from their involvement with LuLaRoe, but yours was not that way. 
partly, as you said, because of timing and luck. But I would also say it's because of your natural skills. You're clearly a very organized, smart, professional person. You have excellent selling skills. You're very thoughtful and observant. And so, you know, you didn't fall into some of the traps that other people did where they really got overextended financially. Why do you have any insight as to why you think people get into so much trouble financially with LuLaRoe or schemes like this? Yeah, I mean, I think people are just sold a dream. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, especially women are targeted who might have made a career change or, you know, done something to be able to stay home with their family and they want to be able to contribute more. Um, you know, there's a lot of social pressures in, and there's a lot of um, pressures in certain religions to fulfill that like motherhood role, but you still want to feel like a vital contributing member of your family and society. So I can see how people. Um, really get taken in in that way. Like, here's a way that you can do both and you can have it all. I, I um, you know, I don't have kids, so I didn't have that pressure. You know, like I said, it was never my goal to quit my day job. Um, and I feel like with LuLaRoe, a lot of the people who got in earlier in the company, it really was run more like a business. Um, the people who came later as it really took off and, you know, the the base of the pyramid expanded wider and wider. Um, it, it became more of, you know, look how successful these people who were already in it are. You can make your money back right away. It's really no risk. You know, just go ahead and, and you're going to become a, you know, a millionaire too. Um, so I think those people really were, you know, shown an inaccurate example of what things were going to be like for them. Um, and kind of, again, you know, just had this dream and it sort of took off. Yeah, there's a lot. It seems as though there's a lot of showing off that they encourage the consultants to do, you know, spend heavily and then show what you've purchased. Yeah, kind of presenting this glamorous lifestyle, which mm -hmm. I guess is fairly typical of multi-level marketing schemes. Yeah. Although it's funny because, you know, with something like LuLaRoe, it's not like you can go out and buy designer clothes to show off because you have to wear head to toe. But I mean, some of the uh, like teaks, the shoes teaks, that's like a very, I don't know if you're familiar with them. They're kind of a expensive brand of shoes that people get really obsessed over. They were huge with LuLaRoe. Mm. Um, certain brands of like handbags and things people really got, uh, you know, into collecting and, and showing off. So um it was just funny that you you can't show off with your designer clothing, but uh, you can show off in other ways. And of course, cars or homes. I know um, at, at least a couple, um, you know, people a couple steps above me in my line in LuLaRoe who like built huge custom homes or moved oh somewhere. Yeah. So um, and I mean, I don't doubt that they had that kind of money at that time. I don't think they were overextending themselves, but um I wonder kind of how they're able, if they're able to maintain them now um, that things have you know, slowed down <laughs> across the company. Yeah, that was pretty impressive in the documentary. You know, I'm not being very familiar with these things. And I think the documentary about herbal life talked more about the damage that was done. Whereas the Lula Rich documentary does show some people who got, you know, pretty rich from, from the whole scheme. So you know, I guess that's always kind of the appeal of a pyramid scheme is some people do get rich. Yeah. I mean, and like you need somebody to be so that the other people will buy into it, I guess. 
Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's the, that's the function of it. Mm-hmm. So did you ever feel as though you were part of a cult or were there things that started to worry you about the organization, like propaganda or behavior at the conventions or slogans they were using? So I personally don't recall feeling like that. Um, but I will say I don't really join in on stuff like doing group dances or doing a group chant or like everybody clap along. I never clap along. So, so maybe I can, <laughs> you're not maybe a clap I'm along less, person. Yeah, maybe I'm less susceptible <laughs> to that. And um, I think it definitely was more evident um, in the higher levels of leadership. So there were weekly leadership calls that like somebody at my level would not have been on. Um, there were leadership conferences that were not open to you know someone at my level um, and meetings and trips that, you know, they would have with like the very highest level leaders. Um, so I'm, I am absolutely certain that at those things, um, there was definitely more pressure and probably more of those kind of tactics used. Um, you know, there were some anecdotes from some of them were part of the documentary, uh, as far as getting, getting people to like fully commit and say that you're all in with LuLaRoe. Um, I think that's where the, the offers of the gastric bypass surgery were made at those kind of events. So it's sort of a combination of like, I wasn't probably privy to that, but also I don't join in on those sorts of things Mm -hmm. anyway. Um, But there definitely were like at the convention that I went to, there was It was at the time when like flash mobs were really popular, which became, it wasn't really a flash mob. It was like, let's all, when we get together, do this choreographed dance that we've all practiced at home and we'll do it in a big group. Um, But like, I don't dance. So I didn't, I didn't participate in the choreographed dance. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sure there's a huge amount of sociology behind all of this. Right. But you do get the feeling that people got started down a rabbit hole and you know, then as they went along, some of these dark undercurrents started to emerge. I mean, one that gave me the creeps was that that apparently part of the, or one of the recommendations was that as the family started making more money, that the husband should quit his job to become part of the LuLaRoe family. And yeah, mm-hmm. that just sort of makes the hair go up on the back of my neck. That seems really creepy. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting because when I was in the company, um, that was kind of given as a, a goal to aspire to, you would see people do it like in, you know, above you, um, my direct sponsor, um, her husband eventually quit his job and they both ran that business together. And again, that was, that was never my goal. Uh, I was like, Hey, you know, if I mean, I guess if my husband doesn't work, that would that would be cool if he didn't have to work. But that again, you know, I was making much better money in my day job than I ever did with LuLaRoe. So it was never my intention to um go all in in that way. Wow, that just yeah, that seems really creepy to me. Just yeah, very invasive in a family. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And of course, people. You know, some people were bright enough to think, why? Why are they asking us to do this? This is probably not for a really benevolent reason. Yeah, very. Yeah. Yeah, very weird. I was really struck while I was watching the documentary about the language that LuLaRoe used to appeal to women, you know, hashtag girl boss. And then these themes of helping your poor husband who works so hard for you and that you know, in general, 
a lot of catering to women who needed flexibility because they're taking care of children, as many uh, very well-educated women are in the United States. They're not working outside the home. They're taking care of children. And Jill Filipovic, the feminist journalist, wrote quite a bit about LuLaRoe and is in the documentary. And she argues that stay-at-home moms are basically an underutilized economic resource in the country. They're the people who are running the PTA and voter registration and food drives and, you know, really a lot of unpaid work in the United States. And, you know, they're smart, they're educated, they have a lot to contribute, but they're not working outside the home because of the childcare issues. So I know this is a really big question to hurl at you uh, this morning, but what are your thoughts about how multi-level marketing schemes do tend to target those women? Yeah. And I mean, I, I totally agree um, with Jill's assessment of, you know, there's these women um, who, like I said, they want to feel vital in their family and their community. And um, I can totally see, again, not being a mom myself, um, but how that could be such an isolating experience, especially with, you know, really young kids and, you know, you have no time to yourself. Um, You constantly are, you know, being a caretaker to others how that can just make you feel so cut off and kind of not part of your broader society. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, you know, this is shown as a way um, where, you know, you can, with minimal time and effort, you can become a, such a contributing member of your family and, you know, earn money. Um, I know kind of just with, uh, you know, MLMs in general, women are, are offered, um like as a way to you know, be able to interact with other adults, you get to go to a party once a week and, and run a party or meet the other people on your team and interact with them and make friends. Um, and I know that's why a lot of women get into it is more for the, the social aspect of things. So again, I, I always feel bad. Uh, you know, I try not to make assumptions or say like, well, if I was a mom, I would do it this way. Cause I'm not. And I'm like, I don't want to say that because who knows what I would be like if I had kids. Um, <laughs> but, but um, I, I, in general, I can see how, um, you know, how that becomes an issue for women. Um, and then, like I mentioned before, I think it's also like a societal and, and in some religions, religious pressure to, you know, you shouldn't be working outside the home. Uh, and so what else can I do? Especially some religions really don't give women you know, even any, any power, like in that, in that faith structure, like all the leadership and everything is men. Um, And there's a lot of MLMs that have become popular in certain communities for that reason, because it's like, you know, well, maybe, uh, you know, my, my husband can give the blessings of the family, but, um, but I can use these essential oils and help you feel better also in that way. Um, So Mm -hmm. I know that's why like oils and kind of health related things have become really big in certain communities. Yeah, that's really an interesting observation. I know in that Herbal Life documentary, they talked a lot about MLMs targeting immigrants Mm -hmm. or minority populations. Then it it couldn't, I couldn't help but notice in the Lula Rich documentary that the one person who stays as a consultant is an immigrant. And, mm-hmm. who, you know, she continues to say throughout the course of the documentary, I'm going to make this work and I'm a businesswoman now. And, you know, there's a lot of pride in that. But yeah, she socioeconomically, she's different than a lot of the 
other women that were involved in LuLaRoe. So yeah, it's interesting who they target and and where it ends up. I'm, I assume that's because there's less money to be made in the whole structure now, but I'm just speculating. Yeah, well, and also the the targeting of immigrants um, by MLMs, it's sort of the same with in many industries where they're, you know, paid under the table and, and not treated fairly. And it's like, well, if you complain, we'll just report you or, you know, we're doing you a favor by, by having you here working. Um, so they're just kind of less likely to complain about unfair situations. Yeah, I guess, I guess if I had to label it, it's sort of like exploitation mm-hmm. at different levels of society, right? You go mm-hmm. after the stay-at-home moms, and then when that stops working out, then you go after the immigrants. It's really, it's all kind of, yeah, concerning. I just did a, a podcast about poverty, and one of the myths in the United States is that if people are poor, it's their fault that they didn't work hard enough, that they have drug problems. You know, I think this is kind of an idea that we often have about the poor. And I was really struck by the language that Mark Sidham uses in the documentary when he's, I guess you could call it coaching or maybe scolding (laughs) people during their official communication to the consultants, basically saying, if you're not making money, look in the mirror. You know, Mm -hmm. other people are making lots of money. So if you're not selling, it's because you're not doing it right. And I just kept thinking, oh my gosh, this is exactly the kind of attitude and that we have toward people who are poor, right? That that it's their fault. It seems to be kind of a typically American attitude, right? That here's an opportunity. If you're good, you'll succeed. And, you know, there's not much of an acknowledgement about structural problems or just general ripoff. So as someone who came out of uh, LuLaRoe, okay, how do you feel about that? Yeah, you know, it's one of the things that really infuriated me um, about his messaging when I was with the company was they would say, you know, you need to run your business like a business, um, as in not as a hobby. Um, and if you weren't successful with LuLaRoe, it was because you weren't like dedicating yourself enough, uh, you know, by giving up your day job and really fully uh, putting yourself in, uh, in the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, obviously, like I said, that was never my goal. So it was almost like they were yelling directly at me when they said, you know, I'm not dedicated enough because I'm not quitting my job. Um, and I've heard uh, from other former consultants since then, you know, who also had professional careers that they weren't about to leave for LuLaRoe, uh, that they felt the same way. Um, I think also a lot, a lot of those kind of teachings um, also might have been related to teachings of their religion as far as like personal choice um, and and those sorts of things. So again, you know, I, and I don't want to get into that because I'm not an expert in that area, but I also um, am under the impression that that's sort of some of their religious teachings um, about your personal choices impacting you in that way. But yeah, they definitely you know, there, there's a there's a quote from Mark about the inventory's not stale, you're stale. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, right. Yeah, obviously, no, people are not able to sell these products. There's a problem with the inventory and the people who you mentioned who are making all the money. It's not because they're selling inventory. It's because they have pyramids of people underneath them. Yeah, that's what makes it seem especially duplicitous, right? Is that, you know, 
you can see how people are making money from the bonus checks off the backs of the people below them in the pyramid, but they're getting scolded. But the people at the lower levels mm-hmm. who aren't getting any bonus checks and aren't making very much money by selling inventory are being scolded. It just seems really cruel, yeah. right? Like yeah. Yeah, sort of beating a person when they're already suffering. But yeah, it's, 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 um, I mean, on one hand, you know, as an American, I love the idea of personal accountability and individual choice and freedom and all these things that really make the United States such a great place. But on the other hand, there can be kind of a dark side to it when the, when the cards are stacked against you, it's just easy to say, well, it's your fault. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not, um, saying personal choice has nothing to do with, you know, how, how your success is in life. Um, but you know, there's a lot of other factors in society that impact what, even what choices are available to an individual, um, let alone what, you know, what choices they can make. So, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't certainly blame people's choices on, um, you know, uh, doing poorly in business or something. Yeah. I wonder, how that comes across to people like you, like when you, you say, it's like he was shouting directly at me. Cause mm-hmm. I, you know, one of the things that they encourage people do to do was if your inventory isn't moving buy more, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I mean, I guess on one hand you, you can applaud them for this sort of, I don't know, the genius of coming up with something like that and how, no matter how unscrupulous it is, but if you are a thinking person like you and you're getting that kind of messaging and you're aware that that's not an appropriate response to not being able to self inventory like wouldn't that seem like that would be self defeating like wouldn't like wouldn't that work against what they're trying to do or I mean, it seems to work for some people. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, and that's sort of the buy more to sell more. Um, that's the message that we would get all the time. You know, your your customers um, don't have enough choice or they're seeing the same things over and over. So you need to keep bringing fresh things in. And I mean, I don't know if this is true psychologically or not, but they would say, um, you know, even if you you know, if you add in some new things into your existing inventory, uh, seeing an, an existing piece next to something new might then trigger someone to buy that one that you had already on hand. I don't know if that's a real <laughs> retail philosophy, um, but th- those are the sorts of things that we were being told. And really, you know, as you know, um, from the pyramid scheme lawsuit, it was just to get uh, consultants to purchase more inventory because the consultants were the, the customers of LuLaRoe. They didn't really care what happened to it in the end. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know all the, all the retail philosophy behind what may or may not have been accurate, but that was the sort of things that we were told. Yeah. I have to confess that there is some truth to it. So I've written, I don't know, I think about five books And it used to be that I would go to an event with my books. And at first I just had one Mm -hmm. and, you know, it would sell, but only to that particular group who were interested in that particular book. And then once I started having more books, Mm -hmm. I realized that very often I would make a sale because, well, they didn't like this one, but there was this other one. So there is something that happens with that. I think that yeah. if you give people a choice, 
and they want to help you out, right? If people are already inclined to purchase, at least then they have an option like, well, I mean, if they're faced with one thing and it's really not appropriate for them, well, they're just going to have to say no. But if you have a few options for them, then they might pick the one that's least uh, unappealing. (laughs) Well, I'll also say, um, you know, there's definitely some truth to the um, paralysis of choice. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially, you know, many LuLaRoe consultants got to the point where they had thousands and thousands of pieces of inventory and whole rooms of inventory. And I couldn't imagine, you know, the paralysis of walking into somebody's basement that's been, you know, taken over as a retail store and, um, you know, and just like here, make a decision at that point, I think, you know, you've tipped to the other side of the scale where there's just too much. And, and also it doesn't seem, um, like as limited of a thing where you need to make a choice right now, uh, cause you have thousands of pieces. So maybe I don't need right. to buy anything right now after all, actually, um, that kind of brought up a memory for me. Um, I was, I did a, a multi LuLaRoe consultant event at a convention center near me. I mean, it was rooms upon rooms of probably every LuLaRoe consultant in the tri-state area uh, came to this thing. And I, I couldn't imagine as a shopper just going through these rooms after rooms after mm-hmm. rooms trying to pick out the thing you're going to buy. So I think, you know, some of those things are almost counterproductive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that seemed to be part of the appeal initially about LuLaRoe was that it was fairly exclusive. Mm-hmm. And so there weren't very many of a particular pattern or a particular design. And so if you wanted to get it, you should. But yeah, it's kind of a self-defeating prophecy or something like, yeah, yeah. eventually that's clearly not going to be the case, right? After you have 80,000 consultants yeah. across <laughs> the country. <laughs> How did you sell? So actually my preferred way to do sales and what was probably the best, um, you know, bang for my time was um, having either small parties or Mm -hmm. um, just small groups of individual shoppers at my home. Um, I didn't have to pack anything up or take it anywhere. I just kind of rolled the racks out into the middle of the room. I only had like three racks of clothes, so not Mm -hmm. uh, a basement full. Um, And, you know, so I didn't have to really put in much effort. People would come here, you know, one person or a couple of friends together, you know, really take their time. We could pick out things they like, try things on. um, And people felt good about themselves and they would leave, you know, with like multiple items that they liked. Probably the next step down would be a party at somebody else's home, which is, you know, also pretty good uh, time to money ratio, but then you have to pack up all your stuff into your car. I drive a Ford Focus. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's not really conducive to hauling around a lot of inventory. I made it work, Mm -hmm. you know, and then you have to bring it all into somebody's house and unload everything and set it up and have people try things on. And that's kind of a mess. Um, I really never did the Facebook live sales that so many people kind of assume is the, the main way to sell LuLaRoe. I, I might've done one or two live videos and nobody purchased anything from them. Mm. Um, so the, the other way that I would sell online was just by having um, photo albums in my Facebook group. I would have like an album for each style of clothing and, you know, being me, I, they were very organized in order and, you know, by, by size and everything. Um, and and people would shop online by leaving a comment on the photo of the item they wanted to buy. And then you'd have to kind of send out invoices later because LuLaRoe never really had a 
like an online shopping cart system that you could use. And we were actually prohibited from using, um, you know, you couldn't set up your own online storefront or anything if you wanted to. That was sort of one of the one of the the rules about LuLaRoe and why it was sold primarily through in-person parties and sales at the time I was doing it. Um, and then, like I mentioned, I did a couple times do different events like that that giant event at the convention center, but I would go to other, um, you know, just like local vendor events and fairs and things. Uh, again, not too often. I hated those. Those were probably the the least return on investment mm-hmm. as far as time. And also you usually had to pay to participate in those kind of things. So, I mean, usually you could sell a couple pieces and make your money back, but um, they really weren't usually worth the time that I would put into those I didn't realize that. I thought you were doing a lot of selling online. I mean, you're so good online. <laughs> yeah, I I just assumed that that's how you were doing it. That's that's interesting that you weren't. No, I, it, actually, I remember um, I had just gotten a, a new dress style that I was starting to carry. And I said, oh, I'm going to do one of those Facebook Live sales mm-hmm. that everyone's talking about these days. And I really, you know, built it up and I had um, little number tags ready to go. I was all set to go and no, nobody cared. (laughs) So I don't know if it was just my customer base wasn't into shopping in that way or because again, I I know a lot of people kind of assume that that's how LuLaRoe primarily was sold. And I think it became that. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the time I was doing it, like the live video function had kind of just been introduced on Facebook. And um, at least my audience wasn't really interested in, in watching a, you know, home shopping network kind of <laughs> version of LuLaRoe. Gosh, that's fascinating. Yeah. And I, I'm again, you know, I'm not a salesperson, but I'm sure there's a lot that goes into this whole issue about personal selling, right? When you're actually with a, with an individual who's, who's helping you like you, right? And and yeah, it can make it the whole experience a really positive experience. So yeah, definitely different to do something online. I was really struck, and I think they make this point in the documentary too, about how Facebook initially was such a boon to LuLaRoe. And then as people got organized to react against LuLaRoe, it also became a weapon mm-hmm. against mm-hmm. them. Yeah, no, the um, the Facebook group um, that was originally called, you know, defective and torn leggings, something like that. Um, that's uh-huh. what kind of grew into um, the group that um, that Becca Peters and, and Roberta Blevins and all those people from the documentary are in now. Um, and it's sort of become more of a almost more of a general anti MLM group, um, definitely with a LuLaRoe focus on their issues and and legal battles and everything that's going on with the company. Yeah, it's interesting to see something. Yeah, it's really a double-edged sword, mm-hmm. right? Something like Facebook where you can access so many people, but but yeah, it can be used as a weapon against you. So mm-hmm. yeah, fascinating. That's probably true for Facebook in general. <laughs> yep. So there's a guy, Robert Fitzgerald, on the documentary. He's an expert in MLMs. I think he actually is also in the Herbal Life documentary. Yes. He just looked really familiar when yep. he came on. I was like, oh, there's that guy again. And he describes LM, LMMs as, as Hydra, as mm-hmm. this kind of evil, predatory creature that you can't really kill. 
So you stop it in one place, but it sort of pops up in another place to take advantage of people. And he really presents it as really as evil, right? That there's basically no upside to it at all. So knowing uh, his opinion about LMMs, how do you feel? Like, would you ever go back to direct selling? Have you done it since LuLaRoe or how do you feel about that? So I actually have been part of a couple other MLMs, including one that I was in before LuLaRoe and remained active with um, for probably about a year after I left LuLaRoe. Um, I will say when I joined any of them, like I didn't really realize that was that structure. Um, I wasn't targeted or, you know, offered to join. It was something that I sought out. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the one that I'm referring to in particular, um, you know, I enjoyed doing that business. I liked the products. I had friends. I, again, just did it as a hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I did go inactive with that company, when I didn't meet the, you know, requirements uh, for monthly sales or whatever, um, I didn't bother reactivating my account at that point. I used to enjoy learning about other companies and supporting my friends and people in their direct sales ventures. Um, knowing what I know now about the industry as a whole, I definitely no longer support that uh, model. And luckily, most of my friends who you know, had those kind of businesses have also since left their direct sales companies. So I don't really have that guilt about you know, feeling like I need to support my friends. Um, but I think also now there's just, there's so much more anti MLM mm-hmm. uh, content or not even anti, but you know, the, mm-hmm. the truth about how they work mm-hmm. that again, you know, I didn't even realize that's what it was when I signed up to do it. Oh, it seems like that was the situation for many people who got mm-hmm. involved. And there's a, there's, there's a kind of funny footage of a woman who says a couple of times in the documentary, you know, my husband's telling me this is a pyramid scheme and Mm -hmm. I'm going to end up sharing a cell with Bernie Madoff. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny how, as things come out, your attitude changes because it, yeah, it's a little unfortunate. I do think that the model probably could be used in certain ways, but it just seems like it always turns evil, right? It just seems like there aren't any that have a happy ending. I don't know. Maybe Tupperware is an exception. I don't know. I mean, even there, and I, I did listen to your Tupperware podcast. I had heard some of that backstory before, but not the not the whole history. But I mean, even there, there's definitely some MLMs or direct sales companies that don't have that kind of scummy you know, feeling that that a lot of people get from from certain businesses, they don't have um, like the negative connotations that a lot of them have. Uh, some of them people don't even realize are in that model. You know, a lot of times people are like, "Wait, Pampered Chef is an MLM, but I use their pizza baking stone all the time. My mom has a kitchen full of Pampered Chef products." Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, it is. Um, so yeah, a, a lot of times you hear about people kind of just making that realization. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, Wait, that's an MLM. So there's definitely ones that don't have those kind of connotations. But even still, I think the model is just set up to so easily take advantage of people in such a negative way. So I don't personally really want to support that kind of you know business model. Well, that's kind of a lead into my uh, question about advice that you have for people who are looking at things like, is there anything that you would recommend that they do or watch out for, or just in general advice that you have for people knowing what you know now? 
Yeah. And, you know, I, I am someone who always does a lot of research before making any major decisions, you know, even with LuLaRoe and, and the other companies that I mentioned that I had joined, I did lots of research to make sure it was a legitimate thing and, you know, that their values would align with mine. I didn't want to get into anything, you know, that I, that I would find out later that I disagreed with. And even still, I, you know, I missed it or I, I wasn't aware of, you know, the, the model and how damaging it really was. So, I mean, I would say for anyone who's considering something now, either about LuLaRoe or some other direct sales company, definitely research about the company itself and see what people are saying about it. Um, but also look at the model of the company and do research on that model as a whole, because, you know, again, if it's that multi-level marketing model, you know, there's there's so much information out there about that now. Um, the anti-MLM community really has grown over the past few years. And, and again, there's just so much information out there um, on YouTube and in blogs and on Facebook. You know, even if you're not personally uh, opposed to a business, just kind of seeing what other people's attitudes are toward it might turn you off of joining. Yeah, that's a really good observation. And maybe anything that starts sounding like get rich quick you know, run. Yeah. If it's too good to be true, it probably right. is. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Well, Lola Geek, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, talking about this very interesting topic. And before I let you go, is there anything you'd like to share with the audience? Any references or resources you want to refer them to? Um, I mean, if you just Google or search YouTube for anti-MLM, um, there's, again, so much information out there that will help inform uh, your opinions, um, or you can see what other people are thinking of these kinds of industries. And anything about yourself or anything you're working on that you want to share? Yeah, I don't, I don't really have a lot exciting going on. Um, you can find me on YouTube. My channel name is Lola Geek um, and most other social media as well. That's my name. So if you, if you want to follow me, you can and see pictures of my cats and, and the food <laughs> that I make mostly. <laughs> Um, I'm definitely not all LuLaRoe all the time. I actually just tallied up my videos on YouTube and I think about 10% are about LuLaRoe. So I'm oh, not, wow. you know, that's not the focus of my channel, but they're definitely um, some of the more popular content that I have. And I'll continue making them as long as I have interesting things to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your work, you know, getting that information out there. I really appreciate people like you who are doing that really for the good of the community. So thank you very much. And thank you for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks everybody for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode and give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon and get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music.